Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm thrilled to have our friend Michael Mead back on our show. He's a renowned storyteller, author, and scholar of mythology, anthropology, and psychology. He combines hypnotic storytelling, street-savvy perceptiveness, and spellbinding interpretations of ancient myths with a deep knowledge of cross-cultural rituals. He has an unusual ability to distill and synthesize these disciplines, tapping into ancestral sources of wisdom and connecting them to the stories we're living today. He's the author of many books, including The Genius Myth, Fate and Destiny, The Two Agreements of the Soul, Why the World Doesn't End, and The Water of Life, Initiation and the Tempering of the Soul. Michael's the founder of Mosaic Multicultural Foundation, a nonprofit network of artists, activists, and community builders that encourages greater understanding between diverse peoples. Michael, welcome back to Conversations. Good to be with you again, Michael. You too. You recently did a podcast on your weekly podcast of a response to climate despair. And I think that's a good place to start to look at this epidemic we have of despair and anxiety and overwhelm that people are dealing with, not just because of climate change, but all the institutions and the changes that we see happening in the world. Tell us how myth and story can help us to cope with these enormous changes that are coming on us. Well, one thing is that we're not intended to carry the weight of the world as isolated individuals, which is in some ways a modern condition right? The, the old notion is that we would all be inside a cohering story. And the story carries, oh, ideas, images, and even possibilities that are kind of, kind of greater than the individual. But the modern world now has the isolated, they used to call it the rugged individual. I think it's now the ragged individual, um, very exposed to the raw emotions that are running through culture and the raw edges of nature now, as nature and culture are both involved in this radical period of change. And I think one of the points we're at is there are many ways in which science is important, the collection of the data and the giving out distribution of the information about the trouble we're in in terms of climate crisis, loss of biodiversity, and so on. But science can't solve the problem or help us carry it. Science, in some sense, is about the quantification and the measuring of the, of the situation. And what we need in order to carry this and find a way through it is immeasurable. It's beyond measurement. It both has to do with the deep self and soul, 
but it also has to do with the world and the living cosmos itself. Well, the Greeks had this idea that you had to account for the world in two different ways. One form of accounting was logic, what we call rationality now, which is what modern culture says it's based upon. But the other logic was mythologic, mythos, mm -hmm. the logic of story, which has to do with the heart. So science and rationality can say, wow, there's a big disconnect here. And here's the edges on which it's all unraveling. But I think it requires mythos, imagination, story, narrative intelligence to find the places to reconnect again and figure out how the human imagination and the human soul can help reconnect culture to nature, reconnect the individual soul to the soul of the world. It's interesting because science has given so much in the modern world and made life more simple, but at the same time, it keeps us in that box of the myth of separation. I mean, at one point before, say, the 16th century, 17th century, the Newtonian-Cartesian paradigm really took hold. But before that, there was the mythic world and there was the objective world and they were able to live kind of in harmony. When we started looking ourselves as objects in a world of objects and everything was measurable, we lost that connection. You talk about community, we lost community, we lost our connection to the natural world, to the magic of creation itself. How do we find our way back out of that box and into a collaborative you and me rather than you or me world? Well, one other thing I think we lost uh, was the intermediaries. They used to call them the invisibles or the intermediaries mm -hmm. so that each place had the genius Loki, the spirit of place. And each tree had a spirit and the stream trying to run through the land had spirit. So there was a middle ground that was the ground of betwixt and between. Is it real or not real? Is there a spirit of place or not? You can feel it in certain places. A, a, you know, a human can arrive at a place and go, oh, this is my home. I need to be here. How do you explain that? There's a spirit of place. The soul connects to it and it changes our life. We lost that middle ground in this exaggeration of object and subject. So then another way to consider the middle ground is the liminal space. And this is something I've been working on. In other words, you could say that we're in the midst of a collective rite of passage. The first step in a rite of passage is separation. You mentioned it in the myth of separation. We've been in that separation place for a long time, mostly without knowing it on a collective basis, kind of in the dream state of technology and objective worldview. And so now we have to actually own that separation. That would be the first thing. That's the struggle of climate deniers and so on. Get to the point of realizing we have separated ourselves in a very serious way from nature, from the spirit of life and many other things. And so we have to inhabit and be genuine witnesses of the separation. And then that's one way to look at that. The second step in the initiatory process of rite of passage is the liminal world, the betwixt and between, the place of challenge, ordeal, but also the place of awakening to a deeper state. That's, I think, what we're in. 
Science can't provide the answers, even if it can provide the nature of the problem. And so we're in that unknown betwixt and between where objective information won't solve it. We need this awakening from the depths of the soul, which is also the way of reconnecting to nature and finding things that might maybe seemed impossible before, not finding them through technology, but finding them to the internal science of the soul. I love that science of the soul. I'm reminded of my late friend, John O'Donohue, who uh, was a big influence in my life. And he used to talk about the Irish, I think it called uh, it Tiranor, Tiranog or something like that. Said it's a- Tiranog. Yeah, right, exactly, Tiranog. Tiranog, yeah. And it's a place that's way far, far away, but it's just right over your shoulder. And I think of it as this place of the magic. We've lost a sense of the magic of life. And that's one of the things I love about your storytelling it and the myths that you share. It takes us into that magical realm, whether you're calling, you're calling it liminal space, but I think of it as magic. What are, what are your thoughts about that place that is so right here and yet so far away for so many people? Yeah, I think magic is a great word for it, although, you know, in a way, magic is the word for change. I mean, change is the magic of the world. And so nature is the constant reminder of the capacity of change. I mean, that's the deepest intelligence in a way of nature. And so we're trying to reconnect to nature, and I think we do that through our inner nature. We're not disconnected. We just believe we are in a certain sense. But I think there's two parts of that. The Irish idea, they called it the other world. It's also the inner world. It's also the underworld. And I think that's where the trick comes. They used to say that when you step, it's one step from daily world to Tirnanog. But in that step, whatever we are carrying becomes amplified to a great degree. So if we're connected to a feeling of love, we step into the other world and we are in that place of great love and beauty and interconnectedness. But if we're carrying anxiety, then we step into that. That was one way to understand the other world. And so now I think both things happen in this betwixt and between. We have to reconnect to the amazing magical potential of life, but we also have to suffer the sense of loss and anxiety, depression, and despair. It's just part of the honesty of the situation. The difference is despair you know, comes from the French, despere, to be without hope. And the difference, one way to understand the difference is in the other world, we lose common hope. Most hopes are too superficial anyway, or too naive. But the loss of hope, leads to that dark night of the soul that the Irish knew very well also. And in the depths of the dark night of the soul is the imagination trying to come into the world through us. And so the fear that people have right now, people have a fear of fear, and yet fear can be the guide. People have a natural resistance perhaps in this culture, especially to despair, and yet despair is the way in which the new vision is born. Mythologically, we're in the period of disorder. We had this orderly, kind of pretend orderly world of subject, object, and all its technology and all the structures. And now it's flat out not working. And so in leaving that behind, we don't go to the new 
vision of the world right away, we have to go through the darkness because that's also what creation myths say. It all began in chaos. When it needs to begin again, it goes back into chaos. And chaos involves that layer of the psyche and soul that's turbulent, uncertain, tumultuous, and it's by going through that that we find the hidden order trying to arise from all the disorder, mm. mythologically. Well, not just mythologically only, there's this whole, people don't want to feel what's happening and don't want to grieve. And for me, I think that the appropriate response to most of what's going on is grieving, is the ability to, actually allow ourselves to break down, to not know, to fall into that dark night of the soul kind of place, and to be able, you know, not to wallow in it, but to actually feel it. But, you know, when you're grieving, it's one thing to grieve a, a parent or a grandparent or even a child. How do you grieve the loss of a species or a million species on the planet when you're not connected? It's clearly a heavy thing. And so it, it can be devastating. And, and so the problem often comes, I would say, internally, the internal problem is a disconnection from the deep self or deep soul. In other words, I mean, the only reason I even try to talk about this stuff is because I wound up in solitary confinement for months on end and went without food for almost two months. And I went into the depths. I thought I had died several times. I almost did. But down deep, when I thought all was lost and I was in despair and I had made all mistakes, so how did I get into this and all that kind of stuff, suddenly or repeatedly actually, and it seemed sudden each time, I found something down in the bottom, which for me turned out to be story. I found a story that was deeper than me, greater than, than myself as I understood myself at the time. And, and I got a buoyancy from that. In other words, I went all the way down and came up with a natural buoyancy that gave me a much greater sense of life. And I find myself now when I'm reading these reports about, you know, nature and all the losses going on, the loss of species, now the loss of insects, insects at a great scale, I feel overwhelmed. I feel tremendous sorrow. And sometimes I just have to get away and get outside. Action is one response, and I think we're seeing that with the climate strikes now, the action helps being together with other people that feel a similar, similar way, spreads the weight of it out. And then we have to find that connection to the deep self and soul, which is the middle part of awakening in the midst of a rite of passage. At least that's how I imagine it. And that's a challenge to people because a lot of modern people think they're empty inside. And Jung, for instance, said, if you follow the soul all the way down, it turns into the world. And we have to follow our souls all the way down and it will turn back into the world connected to nature. And it will find, this is the imagination, it will find the new order hidden in the disorder. You know, you say many people feel empty inside. I'm not sure if empty is how I would describe my experience. I think many feel broken inside, that there's something wrong with them, there's something wrong with the world, they're somehow flawed, something's mistaken. And I'd like to talk about mind a little bit with you and see what your thoughts are. Because when I look 
people have thoughts, but don't recognize that they're not generally thinking, they're mostly having thoughts which come from not even the past, it's the remembered past and the story that they made up at the time of certain events in their life which are now shaping their world. So they think that thoughts are somehow a reflection of reality when in fact they're often the thing that's creating the reality that they're in. So the challenge is that the more people try to change their thoughts or resist their thoughts, the more solid they get. You can't change your mind with your mind, so to speak. So how do we deal with these mental constructs that create these thoughts that we believe are real and they keep us separate and they keep us from tapping into the actual soul essence that each of us is born with? Is that clear? Yeah. yeah, it is clear. It's clear because it has to be the change of mind and heart at the same time. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm thinking in Greek terms this morning, but the Greeks had the word metanoia. Meta meaning beyond, greater than, and noia change. And so what's needed is not an adjustment of the mind. Hillman used to call that moving the furniture in your mind. That's not what's needed. What's needed is a radical alteration, a complete change. And so that's based on the idea that there's something deeper than the story that we're telling ourselves about ourselves, which often has some value once you break it open, you realize that's the story I made in order to survive the abuses and rejections and abandonments of childhood, for instance. Yeah. And then we have to say, no, that's a real thing. And I did learn about feeling in that process and I did learn about fear, but there's more to me than that. And then I keep going back to this rite of passage initiatory dynamic because I think that's the archetype that is below everything going on. And in that, there's the, I guess it's an assumption. So this is the idea part, that there's a deeper sense of self that is umbilically tied to the natural world, to the mythological world, to Tirnanog, the world of great imagination, and to the cosmos. We're actually in the midst of a cosmological crisis at the same time as we have a climate crisis, in the sense that we have been told we are separate from everything in the world. And people have built civilizations on that idea. And the old secret was that the uniqueness of the individual human is threaded directly to the center of the cosmos as well as to the center of nature. And so the struggle is to actually find the thought of that and the feeling that goes with it. And it's often when we're under pressure and in duress, we're actually closer to it. I mean, I've done a lot of work with young people. I've done a lot of work with people in prison and people in the margins and on the edges. And one reason is that they're often closer to change. The more comfortable I am, and comfort often is, I'm comfortable in the t story I tell myself that limits my life. I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. You know, that's better than the unknown. <laughs> and then people get to an edge, they get to the margin of life and they realize it's the unknown we're looking for. It, when we come to the edge of what we know about ourselves and about the world, we're actually closer to changing and we're closer to gaining knowledge. So that to me is back to li liminality between 
the world that was that we no longer can trust or even sustain and the world that's trying to come to be. And, you know, I wrote that book saying why the world doesn't end because the word end doesn't end. The word end means remnant. And so from the end, there's a remnant that starts it again. And that's supposed to be true individually. I can feel I'm at my wit's end and I'm actually closer to a greater sense of wit. I mean, that's the old idea that I'm kind of fighting for in my own life, but imagining that culturally we have to get there. Yeah. A good thing to hold and inquire into as we walk through life, that whole issue. One of the things you talk about, I'm going to come back to mind, and then I want to bring that together with the heart part you were talking about. In your podcast you just did, I remember you said something about that we need to be tough and tender-minded, take a tough and tender-minded approach to facing all these crises that are here. So talk about that and how does that relate to dropping into the heart? So it's an old idea that says that humans have survived because of two qualities, being tough-minded, the survivalist you know, kind of quality, and being tender-minded, which is a reference to the dreamer the one connected to the heart, understanding being that the dreams live in our hearts. And so we have to be both. And when we look at the, the world, the way it's being described and handled now, science gives us that tough-minded looking. We have to look at the loss of species. We have to look at all the damage being done to the water system, the erosion of healthy land, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's required to be alive right now and to take a part in things to take part. Um, but also you have in the tough-minded, people think they're gonna pass laws to solve it. People think technology is gonna solve it. All of that is tough-minded stuff. That's hard-edged stuff. But what is also required and maybe more so in some sense is the tender-minded, the dreamers that have been part of the survival of humanity all along. That's the, uh, the healers. This is where the heart comes in. It's the healers, it's the lovers, the dreamers. Nowadays, people use the word shaman, the medicine people. You know, in the Native American myths, they say everyone is born with the medicine they're for. There's a medicine inside each person, just as there's a medicine inside each thing growing in the world. There's a beautiful myth uh, of how the one who created the world tells these, uh, the first people, uh, some people get sick and there's some, most people ignore it because they didn't even know what sickness was. They didn't know what healing was because they didn't know what sickness was. But there were four people who went out each evening and looked into the darkness. So those would be the tender-minded ones. Mm -hmm. And they're feeling the weight of those who are ill. And they're feeling a disconnection, something's wrong. And the one who created the earth, that's how they characterize the creator, speaks to them and says, for every, every sickness on the earth, there's a cure. For every illness, there's an antidote. For every problem, there's a solution. Gives them that knowledge and then gives them each a song as if to say, uh, on the tender-hearted side, knowledge, healing, and music all come into the world at the same time. And you take, I take those ideas, I call it applied mythology. And for instance, what I need these days and a lot of people need is some ecstatic experience, some experience of love and beauty because it's an antidote to the grief and the terror of what's going on and the anxiety. And so on the tender side, 
you have reconnecting to the dream of one's life and the dream of the world, and then you also have connecting to the elements of joy, the ecstasy that we're supposed to feel for being alive, and beauty, which is a healing thing for the soul. We see the horror of what's happening with the big storms and all the tearing apart of the ecosystems and the breaking down of things. We need to have a connection to beauty because that heals those moments of brokenness. And it gives us, I call it moments of wholeness. And if we can get a good moment of wholeness, which can involve tender feelings for another person, tender feelings for a species, whatever it may be, besides the sense of loss, there can be moments of wholeness that can keep us going for a couple of weeks. And so in the midst of all the breakdown, we have to find moments of wholeness that confirm the tender-hearted view of the world. Hmm. I love that. When I think of wholeness, I think of something I've had to do myself because I'm, I'm a doing person a lot, is really increase my time in stillness and meditation. And for me, that's such an important thing because we're racing and we don't really know what's going to happen. We don't know. And to actually be able to go to that place of inner stillness, which is movement, but inner stillness, and be able to have a sense of the integrity of the whole allows me at least to operate with more wholeness in the world. But when I'm constantly moving and constantly in action and creation, I don't have that sense. I'm very outwardly focused. So how do we bring that back inside? I, I say meditation and, and movement, dance movement for me has been a big thing, but to move from grasping and trying to make things happen and doing to allowing and receiving that which is wanting to come through us. Yeah, no, that's well put. I'm thinking of, I like the idea of the uniqueness of the individual soul, that, that the, the way to connect to the great oneness, the cosmological uni unity, whatever a person wants to call it, apparently, according to mystical imagination, the most direct connection is from the uniqueness of the individual to the oneness. In other words, we don't simply lose ourselves in the oneness, we actually appear more uniquely as ourselves, both to get there and then once we arrive there. I like that idea. And then connected to that was the old idea that there are two paths to this moment of wholeness kind of thing. And one is the meditative path. So there's many forms of meditation, you know, people are using yoga nowadays in the Western world, many kinds of meditative practices. And the other path was the creative arts, that in the moment of creating something, I have joined creation. To really make something is to add to creation. And in the moment of creation, wholeness occurs. And so, you know, many people can do both or need to do both. What I've been doing lately is just sitting in with certain musicians and certain bands and just spontaneously speaking poetry based on what happens in the moment. That gives me something 
that renews circuitry inside myself. You know, I can't get that so easily from writing or simple speaking. I let go and words come in and I, I allow them to go through me. And uh, it's just a weird thing that I've started doing uh, because it happens so quickly and I have to shed what, you know, whatever we want to call it, my, my idea of myself, I have to shed the ego. I have, let, have to let go and let the words just come in. And so that's on that path of creative art in the sense. And so those are the two big possibilities, I think. Mm. Like the almost ecstatic, like you were saying, movement, engagement with the world, kind of like Tai Chi versus meditation in a sense. Mm -hmm. The quieting versus the flowing into the world. And a person has to figure out who they are and where they are and what they need at a given moment. Total quiet, reconnection to the wholeness, or total flow, reconnection to the wholeness. I mean, we're here to transform. We always have been, but now we have to do it because the alternative is breakdown emotionally, psychically, and so on. So anyway. I love what you're saying, Michael, because I, I danced with Gabrielle Roth for 40 years. You know, that was mm, my mm, discipline. Mm. And my meditation was something I did because I felt it was something important and I meditated a little time. Now I meditate quite a long time. But the thing that you're saying about letting the unprepared, unknown, uncalculated essence come through. I've been practicing in my talks and in the videos and things that I've been doing of making sure I'm unprepared, that I don't, so that I can meet the moment with more authenticity because people, especially young people, and you work a lot with young people, they can, they want real. They don't want formulas. They don't want the three steps to prosperity or the seven steps to, you know, whatever. They, they just want real. So many people are caught up in having it perfect that they're totally not present. As if there was a perfect outcome out here in the future, and when you can't allow what's here in the present, we say it draining life from the future. Yes, that's exactly yeah, I what I was saying. saying <laughs> I was thinking yeah, of we're draining life. I was thinking of yeah. the Heidegger quote that about the house of being that nothing in the future can happen unless it's here now in the present, and, and instead yeah. of a, a trajectory to where you're going. And so I'm, I'm like engaging in the same practice that you're doing is like, okay, how can I just be with what's actually here and wanting to move through me right now? And that's an art. That's a talent that I don't know how, you know, because people will prepare and prepare. I have some people that I coach that, you know, want to get it right and everything as if we live in an objective world that, doesn't recognize that it's actually a subjective world all the way. And, and the word perfection is connected to death. It's from the Latin to move through the form. <laughs> to get it perfect is to die. And, and so that's why so many artists in traditional cultures, they would weave the rug and, and have one, you know, one uh, thread out of place, make the ceramic bowl leave the, the glaze off one area to keep the world going. It's the imperfection that keeps us and the world going. So that's a great mistake. I, that old story of the man who wanted to find and marry the perfect woman and 
he meets a beautiful woman, but she's a little bit anxious. He meets another woman who's so skillful, but she's not quick in conversation, whatever. He keeps looking on and on. And finally, he finds the perfect woman. And the only problem is she was looking for the perfect man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she rejects him. And they both lose out on the real proposition of the world, which is to fall in love with someone and something as often as possible. And if from the tender-hearted, you know, view of the world, we have to keep that tenderness in our hearts, or we will be crushed by the amount of change going on and the weight of what's happening. But as they used to say, the soul comes to the world when it wants to do something. So I'm just starting a new course that I've just been putting together on being a cultural mystic instead of sitting in a cave, actually using everything in our life as an opportunity for growth and awakening and uh, healing. Mm. And one of the areas you just, you just mentioned in your little parable there about the perfect man or woman is relationship. Because... It's, it is such an amazing place for growth if we actually can stay present, if we can be present to the relationship in a way that the triggers that happen are happening so that we can actually grow and evolve. You know, we tend to make it about the other person until we've had three or four relationships and they all had the same problem. But that opportunity and that edge, not only in romantic relationships, but say work relationships and others, that when we get triggered, we think that the triggers that happen are in the way of our connection, as opposed to the way to a deeper connection with ourself and the other. Talk about that kind of dance that's available in deep relationships. Yeah, I mean, is, is it the obstacle or is the obstacle the way? Um, and I'm with you on that. I, I imagine that the deep self or soul is always trying to take the experience of our lives and use it as the threshold through which change can occur. Mm -hmm. And what, what I'm thinking of, first of all, is how the pressure coming down on individuals now and you mentioned it at the beginning, we're living at this ridiculous, amazing time when culture is unraveling before our eyes. The institutions are hollowing out. Things that we thought had substance and reality are being dismissed or dissolving. At the same time that culture is in, I mean, that nature is in turmoil. And so the weight of these things, whether people deny them or not, it is having the effect of putting more pressure on the individual and therefore more pressure on relationships. What I'm thinking, it didn't get immediately to a personal place, but the studies now showing how many young people are putting off any kind of meaningful relationship or ideas like having children or, or making a commitment to a path in life. I think that's happening to everyone. It's manifest in a more a clear way in young people, but I think it's affecting everyone. And so um, I think a lot lately of Carl Jung's idea of friends of the soul. And so there are relationships and then there are soulful relationships. And my understanding of the difference is 
the friends of the soul, which hopefully would be uh, the ground level of any meaningful relationship, would be a, a soul to soul relationship. And there what's going on is we love the other person for their imperfections. It's almost as if the imperfections in the two people are what's falling in love. Or I always joke by saying a friend of the soul is someone who knows you and still likes you. Uh, you know, that kind of idea that, uh, so just at the time when soul to soul friendships and relationships are more important because they can sustain the vitality of our lives and our imagination, there's more pressure on those things. And so often I think of um, ritual ways to strengthen that. In other words, um, in the course of the literalizing of the world into subject and object, uh, relationships have become somewhat literalized also in the sense that it's me meeting with the beloved or a good friend, and we're still just two separate entities in a sense. We, at least I find myself thinking that way. And one of the functions of ritual was to take people out of the isolation, the isolated sense of self, and put, they use the word container now, vessel. Mm -hmm. Get in a dynamic vessel where, in, in the case that I think you were bringing up is uh, a, a person-to-person -person relationship, more ritual in that space so that people, the souls can find each other. I mean, we have to extricate ourselves from the daily pressure and the speed of life. The soul prefers moving in a kind of random or irregular ways and it prefers something slower. And so we have to find ways to slow down just to find each other. and and then how to sustain the connection. The old idea was ritual. That's how people would get out of the pace of life and also get away from the need to have the strong ego attitudes, you know, that have become common in the modern world. Yeah. Slow and circular, which to me is really a definition of the the yin, the feminine aspect, which of course we're really starving for a resurgent of the feminine in our culture, seems to be emerging, but the feminist movement is trying to be masculine when the real feminine is the slowing down and the circular grounded receiving. We aren't receiving because we're moving too fast. Yeah, we're moving target. And I yeah. think yeah. The, the other world Hired, <laughs> can't quite connect to us either. Uh, yeah. You know, the oldest idea about the feminine that I can find is um, I hear people say we've lost the feminine. It, it's kind of impossible. <laughs> right. We can lose our knowledge. <laughs> we can lose our uh, capacity to connect to it. But the old notion, it's like a fish in the ocean. The fish doesn't know it's in the ocean and it's keep wondering where it is. And humans don't know that we're in the feminine. The feminine is the earth. It is the manifestation of life. It's all the time. So I've been studying again the old Western idea of Sophia, uh, often called the goddess of wisdom. But 
she was the primordial presence from which the five elements first appeared and she was the weaver of those five elements that make up everything that exists in the world and so anima mundi was another name for that the soul of the world we're really needing that kind of cosmological mythological soulful connection to something that is so big and so vital that it holds us so back to rite of passage or initiation part of the shift in the liminal stage was to remove the young person the girl the boy whoever it was from the lap of the personal mother to the lap of the great mother the idea being that an adult knows they're being held by a world that is profound and present that is physically manifest but also connected to the essence of life I think we're in a struggle to find that. And I think meaningful relationships are partially to help us each find that bigger connection. And then the feminine becomes more known. Absolutely. I want to make sure we talk about youth. I know you've done a lot of work with youth over the years. Whenever I go to a climate change conference, you know, I've been covering these IPCC conferences for many years now. The thing that always gives me cause to to celebrate and feel that something is moving properly is the young people that are there. But when I look at the larger audience of young people in the world, the largest population, also the most suicides, now they've surpassed the military suicides by far, and the amount of suicide, and when we're dealing with a population that doesn't really see much hope for a future. How, how can we support young people in tapping into this larger, to, to create initiation, to create rites of passages, to create, as you said, rituals that can help them through these times because there's so much mental illness, there's so much suicide, there's so much despair and drugs and alcohol and reaching for things that they think will bring satisfaction and then end up hollow and empty once they get them. What's, what's your thoughts? Well, it's a tremendous work. I mean, I'm watching and connecting to young people in the climate crisis movement. And I think the movement and the action generates connection to to many others, like-thinking others. That's really helpful for giving stability to the psyche uh, and the idea of doing something deeply meaningful, the idea that we're here to make meaning in the world and that we are frail and small compared to the world and the cosmos, and yet we are connected to that world. I think young people are trying to find a connection to themselves when they're trying to find a connection to nature. And so, again, I think we're in the midst of this rite of passage. And so supporting young people when they're going in that active way of feeling the possibility of doing something, that can alter the sense of despair. But I think there's also the presence of nihilism. In other words, there's a very nihilistic quality to the right-wing leaders now that are willing to destroy everything. I mean Trump, but also the others around the world. They're representing a kind of nihilism. Not, you know, nothing means anything. 
Um, and then unfortunately, science can fall into that nihilistic thing too. Most views of the world now are extremely fatalistic. It's all gonna come to an end. And that's a pressure on young people now. And so the psychological thing, I think, I mean, when I work with young people who are troubled, which started long before climate issues became so prominent, the first thing I tried to help them perceive and feel is that they are individually unique and valuable. You know, like I remember being at a uh, conference on mentoring and, and someone stood up and said to this group of diverse young people, you're all so great. And then one of them raised their hand and said, yeah, but which part of great am I? In other words, the collective thing can be helpful, support the young people. And in the midst of this radical change in culture and nature, in the midst of, of, the, of the climate striking and so on, what's trying to happen is the awakening of the individual. And I think the job of adults and particularly mentors and elders to bless that part of the young person. And it can only be done effectively on the individual level. In other words, if I see something awakening in a young person, and sometimes you have to get to know them or watch them carefully, and then you see the spark of inspiration in them, and I bless that as best I can, as soon as I can. I didn't know that early on in working with young people. I didn't know if I had the right or the authority or the accuracy to do it. And now I know it's a big mistake not to try because something about the human psyche needs a blessing from someone outside to make the depths of the soul fully awaken or awaken more fully and the sense that I have been seen, I've been heard, I've been recognized, not as one of many, but as one unique soul. So somehow that has to be worked in to this opportunity to be in the middle of transition, radical change affecting both nature and culture, awakening of those unique souls that are trying to do their best to live in the world. I'm afraid to say my experience with young people in suicide, they either are having a moment or they, because it can happen suddenly, or they're having a period where they think there's nothing worth living for. And the reason for that is they think there's nothing in them. And it's the role of culture to say, no, I see that beauty in you. I see your wit. I see your skill. Yeah. It, it's a, and we need to do a whole show on this, Michael. I mean, really. My one thought about that, we're actually starting every month having a special edition with Spotlight on Youth Activism, starting out with two amazing women, young women who were working on ocean issues. So every month on Conversations, we'll have that. And it's, it's such a blessing to our listeners. But when you're talking about blessing these young people, I find that blessing is listening. It's how we're listening. It's not what we're saying to them. It's listening to them as the power creative force that exists in them to awaken that by simply listening to them individually and collectively as the contribution that they're here to make and that they don't even know how big that is. That's my sense of blessing is listening. I'm with you on that. And I think especially empathetic listening. Yeah. In other words, I imagine each person comes into the world with words in their soul. Like each person is a poet in the sense that they have inner words. They have kind of language that 
that is their way of expressing themselves. Some of them with words, others with body movement and so on. And I think that part needs to be seen and heard. I think it goes both ways, that there's a seeing quality, but then I think there's an active engagement with I, which I call blessing. I experienced it myself. I didn't know what had happened, but when I was in solitary confinement, in darkness, knew nothing, what arose and I saw in retrospect were times when I was blessed. And so having lived through the 60s and been part of mass protests and all kinds of things, being locked up for that and so on, I know how it can start out as the great cause and I'm with my companions and comrades and everybody and we're going to do it. We're going to change the world. And then something happens and it becomes an isolating experience. I get lost. I get arrested, whatever happens. And so when the more troubling side of that appears, which it is bound to happen, then I think some kind of blessing is required. I don't, I don't know how to explain it better, but I hear you. I really agree that listening is a very important thing. But then the putting into pronounced words, which is a creation of its own sort, and making it real for both person to say, I see your courage. I see your beauty. It actually makes a change in that person. Yeah. It was the old role of the elder. And you don't have to be old to be an elder. You just have to be awake in the given moment. And young people can sometimes bless each other. Where I think the older people come in is partly doing that blessing that gives them, uh, it's hard to explain. It's like words, just as we're hearing from young Greta, you know, leading Fridays for Future, young woman moving millions of people with her words, then the words of blessing are similar only they go all the way into the soul so that when the young person is in the critical moment, because we know there's a backlash to every act of imagination and kind of attempt to reconnect everybody, then they need, in my understanding of things, that sense that they are not uh, just part of a movement, but they are blessed for their own self, who they are, so they can get through the darker times when things aren't working or things have turned against them. So much more on that subject. And I think we're talking about your new book and doing a show maybe December or January. We'll have to continue on this, but we're running out of time and you're starting a new tour. And I want to make sure that you let people know some of the places you'll be and the, what the tour is about that you're starting uh, in the next week or so. Thank you. There's two parts to it. I'm doing a series of evening events, public evening events that I'm calling Chaos climate creation. And I'm trying to show those three things as related. And the subtitle is uh, uh, Transformation and Renewal on Earth. I'm trying to make the connection between the chaos and the creation and that the climate, the internal climate and the external climate and all this disturbance is the middle ground between these two things. And I'm trying to do, do that in order to help with the issue of despair over the chaos part, over the the heaviness of things, but also to activate the part of us that once, that secretly knows how to engage in the ongoing creation of the world. And then the second part of the series is, is workshops that I'm calling the heart of transformation. So I'm trying to say, we're not here to change things. It's not climate change that we're fighting. It's a crisis of transformation, transforming culture. 
that, you know, that's the big job, I think. And so the workshop is about how to imagine one's own part in transformation of culture and reconnection nature. And there's all kinds of things in there about initiation and liminality, but also about practice, which we were talking about earlier. One thing I learned from the 60s and everything since is I can't sustain creative work if I don't have a practice. And the practice has to be something that suits my psyche, the way it's arranged. And over time, practices change sometimes. And a person has to move into another practice in order to stay connected with inner vitality. So there's ideas in there about that, but also the imagination of sacred service, the sacred service and the notion that if we're going to transform the world, conscious sacrifice is going to be part of that. And that doesn't have to be big things, but there has to be sacrifice. The word means to make sacred, sacrifice. And so how do we find the practices that sustain our, let's say, our genuine purpose? And then how do we understand what are the right sacrifices that give us depth of meaning in our own lives, but also change the outer life? So there's workshops on that. Michael Mead, thank okay. you for your wonderful stories, your years of work with youth, with old people like me, with <laughs> prisoners. <laughs> We're all kind of prisoners too. Yeah, but it's great out. great to spend time together. I look forward to uh, working with your new book, maybe uh, the end of the year or the beginning of next year. So many blessings, my friend. Thank you. Yes, and back to you, Michael. I look forward to working together in the future. Thank you. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.